Hey everyone, so I'm going to attempt to do some screen recording with that uh, that used 2011 Mac Mini I bought off of uh, eBay, what, a couple of weeks back or whatever. Um, so hopefully this doesn't turn out to be a failed experiment, uh, fingers crossed. So yeah, yesterday I published uh, the this month's documentary special, and it was the one that I entitled... Nietzsche, Dionysus, and the Turin Horse, or Turin Horse. <laughs> um, it's kind of funny, even though I'm a non-believer, an atheist, uh, you guys probably know that I have this long-standing fascination with the, with the Shroud of Turin. So yeah, it's kind of funny, Nietzsche's, uh, you know, mental collapse also took place in uh, Turin, Italy. Um, but yeah, I'm trying not to make a liar out of myself. I know I was a little late getting the documentary special out. And so now talk about cutting it close. I'm trying to get that fourth episode uh, out before, you know, I run out of time. And it's uh, it's August 31st and it's 10 p.m. So that that gives me about two hours to get out the final episode of the month. So as I said, you know, the first two episodes of the month will be kind of structured news story episodes, and then the third episode of the month will be uh, a documentary episode, and then the fourth episode of the month will be uh, just a kind of free-form thing, you know, where there's not a lot of structure or restrictions. So, uh, okay, here we go. And once again, let, let's hope that everything doesn't crash and that I lose my recording while I'm like an hour in or whatever. Um, so you might be wondering if you're watching the YouTube uh, version of this because I plan to, you know, record the uh, both the video and the audio together as I go and then now leave me with an audio version for the uh, the podcast and a video version for the YouTube channel. And you might be wondering, Phil, why the hell do you have uh, like a collage of uh, of a uh, a shirtless Roger Stone on your computer? No, it isn't some weird fetish. It has to do with uh, a correction. So the last episode I put out before this uh, month's documentary special that I released yesterday. I was covering a story about how political hatchet man uh, Roger Stone, who was recently pardoned by Donald Trump, was slated to give a talk at some hate preacher's church or something like that. And I think I mentioned, yeah, I mentioned how when he was young, he worked for, for Nixon. And uh, I mentioned him having like a, a male tramp stamp, a tattoo of Richard Nixon on the small of his back. And I think that was wrong. And I, I'll throw Jenk under the bus here. <laughs> uh, I could have sworn I heard Jenk from the Young Turks uh, mention numerous times that Roger Stone suppo supposedly had a tattoo of Nixon on his lower back. So here um, we have some image results on Google. There's a bunch of them that show a... Uh, a shirtless Roger Stone with a Nixon tattoo at the uh, in between his shoulder blades, so you know near the top of his back, and some of these seem like they've been photoshopped. So I don't know how accurate this is, um, and uh, 
I guess Roger Stone, you know, it's funny because he seems like this kind of geeky, creepy, kind of weaselly guy. But I guess uh, he's into working out and he's known for, you know, kind of showing off his uh, muscular physique. So it does seem like, you know, for an older guy, he has a pretty good physique. But some of them, I don't know if these images are kind of uh, photoshopped to exaggerate how big he is. Because there's a couple of images that make him look like he has lats, like, you know, Schwarzenegger in his prime or something. So it looks like the, the Nixon tattoo has also become kind of a meme. So I don't know if a lot of these images have been digitally altered. And so it's such a kind of silly or trivial thing to issue a correction about. But I don't like the idea even though unintentionally, of putting false information out there. You know, I feel like I have a sense of duty, even though I have a very small podcast, to get things right and to be as factual as possible. So, and here's this one image of uh, Roger Stone shirtless in the middle of a street with some, like, body-painted like alt girl or something licking his face uh very very strange um and here's a little cartoon of roger stone with his nixon tattoo and it has trump with a with a putin tattoo uh yeah so and oh and i was going to mention before i forget about it completely so yeah i put out that documentary on Nietzsche and the Turin horse, and there's a bunch of digressions on uh, on Dionysus in there too. And I joke, you know what, around the middle of that episode, right before I play a clip of Jim Morrison doing this little improvised thing where he's playing the piano while he talks about Nietzsche and the horse incident, I jokingly say, all right, if you're watching this on YouTube, hopefully I don't get a copyright strike. And I didn't get a copyright strike. That's the more serious um, of the uh, infractions or whatever. Uh, basically, three strikes and you're out and you're off of YouTube. Um, so I didn't get a copyright strike, but I did get a copyright claim. And that's when... Uh, it's probably done, you know, generated uh, automatically, I don't know, but if uh, YouTube or maybe, uh, I don't know how it's done, um, I don't know if the owner of the copyright material seeks it, it seems to happen much too swiftly to be, you know, someone combing through, you know, uh, videos looking for infringement on um, on their of their clients' copyrighted material or whatever, you know, Um so it has to it has to be, you know, kind of uh some kind of algorithm that's, you know, picking things up. But pretty much as soon as I published that episode, I got a copyright claim notice. And I've complained about this before on the show, but you know, I understand it totally that a person has the right to want to safeguard their copyrighted material and to want compensation if someone uses said material that they own the legal rights to, you know? So I totally get that, but there's also the principle of fair use. So that Nietzsche documentary was about 24 minutes long, and the clip of Morrison playing the piano was less than two minutes. So I get a notice, but yeah, it's, it sucks, but basically saying that, you know, either, uh, I know that Electra Records 
owned the rights to all the Doors music, and that was the publishing company um, with which the Doors, you know, published their uh, their records back in the day. I don't know if it's still a Electra or if Electra is a subsidiary of a larger label. You know what I mean? Or if the the uh, copyright for the Doors catalog has maybe changed hands. I don't know. But whoever owns the right to that video clip and or the audio, you know what I mean? Um, basically, they're most likely now going to be getting any money that I make off of that, uh, you know, any ad revenue that I make off of that uh, Nietzsche documentary. So, yeah, I think that constitutes fair use. Um, like uh, under a two-minute clip in a 24-minute documentary, you know. It's like, so I did all the hard work, the research, writing the script, putting the video together. I could understand if they were like, hey, that's our copyrighted material. Could you please remove it from the video or whatever, you know? Uh, I could totally understand that. And I've mentioned this in the past, but I think, you know, the fair thing would be if no one, you know, is able to monetize the content. You know, that way you don't have a big company stealing away all the ad revenue from some little guy's video when only a very small part of it includes copyrighted content, you know? Or this would probably be complicated to implement, but maybe a certain percentage goes to the, um, the owner of the infringing content or whatever, you know? And uh, the, the content creator, the person who made the video that they thought uh, should be covered by fair use, you know, they also get some of the revenue. I think that would be the fair thing to do. But the idea that, what is it, like 2 or 5% of the video is utilizing, you know, someone else's content, just a quick little clip for reference, and you have this big company, it's basically like turning a small content creator upside down and shaking the change out of their pockets. It's like, come on. You know, like I said before, I think the fair thing would be is that no one gets to monetize the video, you know? And we'll see what happens because as you, you know, longtime listeners probably know, my regular news story episodes don't really get that many views on YouTube, but some of my documentary episodes have gotten thousands and thousands of views. I think last time I checked, my uh, St. Patrick's Day documentary was well over 30,000. My Baphomet documentary, I think, is about at about 60 or 70,000, at least the last time I checked. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are interested in philosophy, who are, who are interested in Nietzsche in particular. And so who knows, that documentary could end up blowing up on YouTube. And then if it does, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting any of that ad revenue. I probably wouldn't care. Uh, but it's the fact, it's just the principle that if, that ends up getting a lot of views that someone else is um, getting all the revenue from it just because, as a quick reference, I included a little clip that I thought, in in principle, should be covered uh, under fair use. Uh, we'll see. But I think as uh, last time I checked, it only had 14 views. So who knows? Probably getting ahead of myself there. Um Sometimes it's hard to predict what videos will perform well and which ones won't. And so the problem of doing a weekly show is 
that, uh, you know, you find all these stories maybe at the beginning of the week that you're really interested in and you, th- and you think would make great content. But by the time the end of the week comes around, it's time to sit down and record. Some of the stories seem stale or they seem like yesterday's news. And so one story that I really wanted to cover, I was really excited about because it was just so strange. I think it was David Pakman, but it was, what was it, the first or second day of the RNC? And um, I had David Pakman covering it in the background while I was working on my computer. And all of a sudden, I hear this woman's voice. And she sounds like very pissed off and aggressive, like she's shouting. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So I turn around and look at the TV, because I don't watch traditional TV anymore, but I have an old gaming rig with an old flat-screen TV on it, and that's basically where I watch my movies and TV shows and consume all my online content, like uh, YouTube videos, etc. So yeah, David uh, Pakman's coverage is playing in the background. I hear this woman like angrily shouting or something. And I turn around, and I can kind of see it looks like... In a, a fairly attractive woman in a tight red dress. Almost looks like she could be Hispanic, but I'm not sure. And I'm like, is that Kimberly Guilfoyle? I'm like, no, it can't be. I've never heard her like yell and scream like that. Well, she wasn't screaming to be fair, but very kind of angrily shouting. Um, like this very kind of aggressive vocal style. And I'm like, is that her? What the hell is going on? Then also I realize, yeah, it is. It's Kimberly Guilfoyle. And so I think I mentioned on the show before that I basically became interested or became more interested in politics after 9-11. I think maybe that was kind of a wake-up call that made me want to get more involved or keep more up to date on, uh, you know, uh, global affairs, on the news, that kind of thing, politics. And so back at, you know, so this was, uh, I was in my 20s. And I would bounce back and forth between CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. And once again, I think it's funny because Tucker Carlson has become this... I almost mangled Carlson again. Anyway, uh, Tucker, we're on a first-name basis. Uh, Everyone associates him now with Fox News and being really far-right. But I can remember, and it's funny because the three big networks, Tucker has had shows on all of them. He used to do Crossfire on um, on CNN. And for a while, he had a show on MSNBC. Crazy. Uh, anyway, so Kimberly Guilfoyle has been on uh, Fox for, I don't know if she's gone now. I don't know. I don't know if she maybe left, and this is just speculation, I have no idea, because it could be seen as like a conflict of interest if she's uh, dating the president's son and then she's reporting on the news. Maybe she's still with Fox. I haven't watched Fox in a very long time. All I see is the kind of controversial little clips you see on YouTube or whatever, you know. Um, But I remember back in the day, I used to watch that show Red Eye with uh, Greg Gutfeld. Um, It was... It was interesting because it was geared towards a younger audience and it was very kind of edgy and irreverent. It didn't fit with the rest of Fox's programming and it aired like in the, I don't know if it was the middle of the night, but it might have been around like midnight or something. Um, And so Kimberly Guilfoyle had, uh, I don't know if she had her own show or if she was just a correspondent, but she would also appear on Red Eye. 
And I used to think she was really attractive, you know, and uh, it's funny because I noticed a couple of things about her speech and uh, I was then I went and I watched other content creators commenting on her speech because I think a lot of people were like, what the hell is this I'm, I'm watching or listening to? And uh, it's funny because she's always been very attractive. And I think she's... Uh, I think she's like in her early 50s and Don Jr. Jr. is in his early 40s. Um, but it's funny, attractive, but she always had like a very like wide mouth, like a huge mouth, almost like a pretty trout. Um, and I don't think the Amazing Atheist was familiar with her. And his first reaction was he's kind of like laughing incredulously. He's like, wait, what's going on with this woman's mouth? You know, then he also... I, I saw a couple of content creators do this. They uh, they made jokes about how it, you know, it was... This is what I was thinking when I first watched it. I was like, this is like one second away from like a Zig Heil or something, you know? And other people noticed that too. It had a very kind of fascist, almost uh, third right kind of feel to it. The wild gesticulations and the, uh, you know, the very kind of aggressive speaking style. Um, but yeah, so I've known of Kimberly Guilfoyle for a very long time, and I thought it was really bizarre when all of a sudden she started dating Don Jr., and I think she was, like I said, for all I know, she could still be on Fox News, but I know she was on Fox, uh, and what was it? I think they called it The Four or something, because Greg Gutfeld earned a kind of, you know, an early evening spot eventually. And he was the host or a co-host of this show called The Four or The Five. I don't remember what the hell it is. Where they'd have like uh, four, aptly or appropriately enough, uh, panelists or, or hosts just kind of arguing or hashing out certain, uh, you know, the issues of the day or whatever. Okay, and so this is me interrupting my own show through the magic of editing, but the name of uh, that show was indeed The Five, not The Four. Uh, kind of a trivial thing, but I don't like getting things wrong. Okay. And she would appear on that a lot. Um, and she, originally she was married to Gavin Newsom, who's thought of as being this very, very kind of liberal uh, politician and um and then they divorced or whatever and so now she's with don jr and that that seemed really weird to me because she was on fox and so yeah so the way it goes is msnbc leans heavily to the left fox leans heavily to the right and then you have cnn in the middle but uh this has been a very strange four years and so cnn did used to always be very objective but, you know, Trump called them out, was calling them fake news and all this. So uh, CNN, it seems like, you know, has gone to war with Trump. And I don't think they're making up things or anything like that. I still think out of all the major networks, CNN is, the, you know, the cable news networks. CNN is still the most objective. You know what I mean? But it, it seems like once Trump started going after them and trying to label them or smear them as fake news, it seems like. CNN just took off the gloves and said, all right, you know, we're going to go hard at, at this guy. We're going to go hard at him with the facts, but still go hard at him, you know? And so it's weird kind of seeing CNN, which has always been considered like a, a really objective network, kind of at war with a president, you know, very strange. Um, so anyway, but, you know, Fox 
being, you know, leaning heavily to the right, they've mostly been on the pre- on uh, Trump's side for the last four years. But uh, they have pushed back, you know, certain um, hosts or whatever, or commentators have pushed back against Trump a little. And of course, you have um, Chris Wallace, which I think he was one of those um, gets, you know, because he was a respected journalist before he joined Fox News. And so, yeah, I think Chris Wallace, that was probably a strategic pick. You know, he was uh, a respected, established journalist before he joined Fox. And I wouldn't be surprised if the higher-ups at the time at Fox News were saying, this guy will give us, you know, an air of credibility. And uh, he's known as being a kind of fair yet hard interviewer. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, he would kind of stand out as being a more kind of reputable journalist uh, in comparison to uh, people like Tucker or Hannity, uh, these kind of hard right kind of talking heads or whatever, um, who kind of seem like they're more in the bag for the uh, the Republican Party or whatever. So, yeah, I don't, it was weird because you had uh, Fox constantly covering the president, mostly in a very favorable way or in a favorable light, including Kimberly Guilfoyle. Then all of a sudden, she's in a relationship with Don Jr. And that seems so freaky because, I mean, she's been working with Fox for what, at least a decade or something. So I would imagine that she's probably you know, managed to accumulate a a substantial amount of money. Um, So she doesn't seem like the person who would be easily charmed by someone with deep pockets or whatever, you know? So it seems very weird that she would kind of hook up with uh, Donald Trump Jr. Because he kind of seems like basically he lives in his father's shadow. Um, Seems like his whole life is dedicated to you know, trying to protect daddy or whatever, or or defend daddy, you know? Um, So it seems kind of weird that she would uh, go for Donald Trump Jr., but who knows? And so, yeah, that seemed really weird because even though I wouldn't always agree with with Kimberly Guilfoyle, she at least seemed like a a fairly intelligent uh, person um, uh, with a fairly subdued, you know, temperament or personality. So to see her behind a podium, kind of wildly gesticulating and, uh, you know, basically shouting and yelling about how much, you know, how good Donald Trump is for the country and how awful the left is and everything, you know what I mean? Um, and using all this kind of high, you know, hyperbolic language, really weird. And then she gives, I think she gave Don, uh, Don Jr. a little fist bump at the end. Uh, like he was saying, good jo- yeah, good job looking like a maniac up there. You know what I mean? And then he also spoke at the RNC. And uh, people were speculating whether or not he and Guilfoyle may have been all revved up on a drug. In particular, people were uh, speculating cocaine. And that's pure speculation, conjecture. conjecture I have no idea. Uh, but yeah, Don Jr., his face was all red. People were talking about how it basically looked like he had little bloodshot uh, slits for eyes. So I have no idea what the hell is going on there. And let's see, I've kind of queued up just a condensed version of her uh, her speech there. A robot home app. Go, Go away, ad. 
Go away, Ed. Good evening, America. I'm Kimberly Guilfoyle. Yes, a proud supporter of President Donald J. Trump. Rioters must not be allowed to destroy our cities. Human sex drug traffickers should not be allowed to cross our border. Just take a look at California. The Democrats turned it into a land of discarded heroin needles, riots in streets, and blackouts in homes. In President Trump's America, we light things up, we build things up, and we stand for our flag. Do you believe in American greatness? They want to control what you see <laughs> and think and believe so that they can control how you live. They want to enslave you to the weak, dependent, liberal, victim ideology to the point that you will not recognize this country or yourself. President Trump spoke about making America great again. His promise was to put America first and he has. President Trump commanded the defeat of ISIS, took out al-Baghdadi and Soleimani, and paved the way for peace in the Middle East. When he negotiated historic trade deals with Canada, Mexico, Japan, and China, that beacon shined bright once again. America! <laughs> President Trump believes in you. He emancipates and lifts you up. You are capable. You are qualified. You are powerful. And you have the ability to choose your life and determine your destiny. Don't let them kill future generations because they told you and brainwashed you and fed you lies. Stand for an American president who is fearless, who believes in you, and who loves this country. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty, the best is yet to come. Yeah, and then it was kind of awkward because obviously because of COVID, they can't you know, pack a bunch of people into a hall or whatever. So these people were giving what were supposed to be these kind of electric speeches that were would really, you know, rile up an audience, but they were giving them to an empty room or whatever. And so, you know, that, that big finish when you would, you know, it's like they're, they're just waiting for the crowd to stand up and cheer, except the crowd's just in their head and it's dead silence. So that was kind of awkward and weird, but yeah, I don't, but yeah, I don't know what the hell was going on there. That is, I don't know how to explain it. That's really weird, man. Um, and so even though this is going to be an unscripted kind of free form um, episode, I'm going to try to knock, you know, famous last words, go beyond an hour because I have to wake up and go to work tomorrow, you know, at like seven in the morning. So... There was a, actually, it's a kind of two for one thing. I think it's two different uh, kind of Scott Adams things I want to talk about. And so, uh, you know, let me see here. You know, why not? Let's let's look uh, look up Dilbert. So Scott Adams is the uh, is famously the creator of the Dilbert comic strip or whatever. And me personally, I've I typed it into YouTube. Um, and uh, my apologies if that video of Kimberly Guilfoyle ends up looking really choppy and laggy. Uh, once again, I'm you know I'm trying to run a screen capture uh, app on a 2011 um, Mac Mini without a, a dedicated graphics card or anything. I have to learn how to uh, stream and screen record on my backup uh, PC uh, that has much better uh, specs. And so I've never really been big into Dilbert. I don't think I've ever read a uh, a Dilbert, you know, comic strip from beginning to end or whatever. 
And he always kind of freaked me out. I never liked the look of the character. It kind of looks like Drew Carey wearing a crown of tumors. Um, but Scott Adams, you know, I have to stop saying I have a short list of people I do not like that really, you know, rub me the wrong way because that list just keeps growing and growing. And Scott Adams is another one of those people. Uh, I know I'm supposed to try to be rational and, you know, offer a kind of logic and reason-based perspective on things, you know, but uh, just my, you know, my gut reaction to Scott Adams is there's something about the guy I don't like that just rubs me the wrong way. It almost seems like a weird combination of delusion and arrogance. The guy has some very weird takes, but he seems very confident in his takes. And he always has that kind of creepy, shit-eating grin on his face. Um, he reminds me of people I've known in my own life who, who seem to think that they're never wrong and they're a little creepy, always got that that creepy grin on their face. Um, so, yeah, just my, my knee-jerk reaction to the guy is that he just, you know, rubs me the wrong way. Uh, and then on top of it, I think he has some very weird, almost nuts takes on things. Oh, yeah. So a shout-out to Idol Racer, a, uh, a person on Twitter who always kind of, you know, gives me feedback. And I'm saying this very playfully. They always kind of <laughs> mention how um, the Podbean links that I tweet out when I release a new episode, how they don't really take you to the optimal page where you can easily download the uh, episode. But I actually, um, I appreciate him doing that because he always provides the easier, you know, the location that I think is is easier if you're interested in actually downloading the episode. Uh, and he um, tweeted at me a link to an episode of Sam Harris's podcast where his guest is Scott Adams. And uh, I think it's a couple of years old, but I had never seen it and it was new to me. And I remember when Scott Adams was kind of becoming a darling of the kind of anti-PC um, crowd or whatever, you know, and I had no interest in the guy. So so maybe I did notice in passing two years ago that he had Scott Adams on, but it didn't interest me. So I never listened to it. But it, when uh, Idol Racer tweeted the link at me, it struck me as something I hadn't been aware of. And so he seems, man, just maybe I should uh, try to see, try to think which I should play first. Uh, listen, this was. Oh yeah, it's strange because I'm not used to hearing Sam Harris like this, but he does a little um, introduction to the episode, to the interview, and he almost sounds a little sheepish or apologetic and almost apologizing for, for getting too triggered during the interview. And I will say that I was on Sam's side when I was listening to this interview, but I did think, you know, just strategically, I was like, oh no, Sam, you're starting to sound too emotional. You sound like you're kind of losing it. And then people are going to turn that against you and say that uh, Scott Adams was the cool headed one who prevailed in this interview. And you were the irrational one who, you know, came off as biased. So it was probably the most kind of worked up I've ever heard Sam Harris so he does this little interview but and I think this is a fair synopsis of Scott Adams philosophy but basically um Sam Harris was like you know why the hell do you like this guy 
and uh, and so Scott Adams and I was reading his uh, his bio before on Wikipedia, and under the politics section, it says that he considers himself really left, even further left than Bernie Sanders, so he says. And I guess he was a, an admirer of sorts in Bill Clinton back in the day. And uh, I want to see if I can find it. I'll just go on Wikipedia and look for it. Yeah, so here's his uh, Wikipedia page. I'll go to the politics. Adams has often commented on political matters, although in 2016 he wrote on his blog, I don't vote and I'm not a, a member of a political party. I do vote, but I'm not a member of a political party. I consider myself an independent, but obviously I lean left and I tend to vote for um, politicians on the left. So in the past, he suggested that Michael Bloomberg would make a good presidential candidate. Um, says on social issues, I lean libertarian minus the crazy stuff. But said in December 2011, if if he were a president, he would do whatever Bill Clinton advised him to do. Let's see. Yeah, in 2017, described himself as being left of Bernie, but with a preference for plans that can work. And then it says, um, although Adams stated he would not endorse a candidate for 2016, he repeatedly praised Donald Trump's uh, persuasion skills. Okay, so that brings me to where I want to uh, pick up. Yeah, persuasion. That's a big theme with him. And so uh, when Sam was asking him, you know, why the hell do you like Trump? And I'm paraphrasing, but that was kind of the sentiment, you know. And he was saying that uh, Scott Adams himself uh, has long been interested in or, you know, a practitioner of hypnosis. And... Uh, and, you know, and he's really interested in the kind of power of persuasion and stuff like that. And so he was saying basically what drew him to Donald Trump is that he admired Trump's persuasion skills. And he basically said that in all his life, he had never seen anyone as persuasive as Donald Trump. It's almost like he knew the secrets of a trained hypnotist. And he never he's never seen anyone in his lifetime who has a stack of persuasion skills like that. And so Sam Harris is kind of like, he doesn't seem persuasive to me. I see right through the guy's bullshit. And that's that's how I feel like myself and many other sane people uh, view Trump. And basically, you know, if his ego and his ineptitude didn't make him so dangerous, he would just be this really comical figure, this kind of bumbling you know, this kind of weird puffed up character bumbling through life or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, and so Sam Harris was like indignantly, what persuasion skills does this guy have? I see right through him. But I think Scott Adams is right in a way where I think with just, uh, I don't want to say low IQ. And I think I mentioned this on the show before. You know, my brother once at a Thanksgiving dinner when someone kind of painted with a broad brush about, you know, people being stupid, um, you know, during a political discussion, whatever. And my brother said, you know, in a kind of serious, sincere tone that very little, very few people are actually stupid. They just haven't, you know, actualized their potential yet or whatever, you know. 
And that's similar to the worldview that I've carried around. But when I see how an obvious grifter like and, and BS artists like Donald Trump, how he can have such wide appeal and has managed to build this cult of personality up around himself, it really has made me think, um, maybe there's a lot of people out there who just ain't that smart. You know what I mean? Uh, so it's clear that he does have strong persuasion skills, at least with a, with a certain type of people or a certain base. And it's good that there's, you know, people like Sam out there that I can look at and go, good, I'm not the only one. This guy is like plainly a bullshit artist, right? Uh, this kind of, you know, weird, puffed up egomaniac, bullshit artist, con man. Um, so when I hear other people, people that I view as being intelligent and who care about facts and have, you know, decent critical thinking skills say the same thing. I'm like, good, this isn't a Twilight Zone episode where I woke up and uh, I can see the guy's a bullshit artist, but no one else can. And so as I made my way through listening to this episode of Sam's show, I started to be able to put together a kind of outline of Scott Adams' worldview, um, or at least as it pertains to, you know, politics. And so he seems to basically say that he agrees with Sam that Donald Trump has a long laundry list of things that he said that, that just plainly are not true, that aren't factually true. And Scott Adams was completely agreeing with that. But he his point was that it's okay that Donald Trump tells constantly tells falsehoods um, because he's still moving things in the right direction. And basically, Scott Adams basically comes out and says kind of what I was saying, that there's a, a sea of people out there, a very large demographic that you can't really appeal to using logic and reason and, you know, a devotion to the facts. And, and so... What you need to do is, it's all right if you're a bullshit artist and you can manipulate these people with your, um, with your bullshittery, I guess, <laughs> the ancient art of bullshito, you know what I mean? Um, if the results are good. If the guy moves the country in the right direction, it's all right that he's BSing everyone along the way, you know what I mean? So that seems very, like, cynical to me. And, um, and obviously this episode of Sam's show, yeah, 2017, so three years ago, and things have significantly changed since then. I don't know if Scott Adams would be saying the same thing, um, if he was, you know, had a crystal ball and he realized where we'd be now. But for all I know, maybe he is still say, uh, saying the same stuff because I'm going to, uh, cover a story where he's kind of bashing Biden. And uh, so maybe he's still on the Trump train, you know, despite COVID, despite the disastrous race relations right now and the fact that, you know, there's, there's still rioting in the streets, etc. And I know you can't blame COVID, the actual disease on Donald Trump. The outbreak isn't his fault, but he dropped the ball concerning the reaction or the response to the pandemic. Uh, I think, you know, in fairness, he did take some small steps in the beginning that were, you know, probably um, the right thing to do. You know, trying to take some kind of small steps to limit uh, traffic to and from China or whatever. 
But we all know this is the guy who probably, you know, for the sake of his own ego and the try to save face, famously said, I told him we need less testing, not more, you know, and bragging about how well the country's doing regarding COVID when it's still surging. Um, yeah, so and now uh, we're entering September and we're going to have to see what the hell happens when kids start getting sent back to school, you know. So I don't know, maybe Adam still is supporting uh, Trump, I don't know. But yeah, and so another thing he said that I thought was very cynical, he was saying that when you really drill down, people are basically rotten. And so, okay, I'm the one with the secular worldview. I'm the one who um, is, you know, the non-believer, the atheist or whatever, you know, and who believes and has said on the show that I think basically we're essentially what you get if you were to take something like a chimp, you know, with, uh, you know, chimps can be very social and uh, caring, practice group solidarity and, and whatnot, uh, but they can also be <laughs> violent and destructive and tribalistic, you know, and, and be capable of some very nightmarish stuff, you know, like, you know, hunting down and rending, you know, live monkeys, uh, committing infanticide, uh, basically brutally beating and ripping apart uh chimps from rival troops or whatever uh, and i i've said half jokingly on the show before and i think it's probably the truth that we're basically what you get if you took something like a chimp and allowed it to evolve a bit more you know what i mean um and so you know that sounds pretty cynical or pessimistic on my part and i still wouldn't say that when you draw when you drill down most people are basically uh, rotten. I think in a way, most people are probably good or have the potential to be good. But I think certain things do bring out the worst in people like uh, tribalism. Tribalism can be good in a sense because it's conducive to group solidarity and things like that, but can also lead to a lot of ugliness and violence. Um, and obviously, once you get a kind of mob mentality, going, you know, people can do heinous things in large groups that they might not do otherwise. You know what I mean? And I think it's that kind of group thing that led to things like the Holocaust. You know, you have a charismatic leader who starts guiding everyone in a very dark direction and everyone just kind of goes along. And next thing you have hell on earth, you know, you have the Holocaust. Um, so people are capable of some horrible, heinous shit, but I think most people individually, um, do have, you know, a significant amount of good in them. Sure, there's a lot of darkness inside too, you know, there's things like, uh, like jealousy and anger and, uh, all that type of thing. But, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think there's, there's more good in people than he gives them credit for. He talk, I think that's a very kind of toxic or ugly way to look at the world, that when you drill down, people are mostly rotten. And I just think factually, it's not true. But uh, I wonder if, uh, let's play some of this. And I hope you enjoy it. I now give you Scott Adams. I am here with Scott Adams. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, you are a, a very interesting guy who has written a very interesting book that uh, I will have properly described in the intro to the show. 
and I'll, I'll link to it on my website, obviously, and people can get it there. We're not really going to get into your life or your other work unless it becomes relevant to the political discussion we're planning to have. But I'll just tell our listeners that, that I've been reading your book. That the title is How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And it's very interesting. It's very, it's very useful and, and surprising. And our conversation will not do it justice at all today. Uh, but I encourage people to get the book because you, you give a lot of good advice about how to get what you want out of life. I haven't finished it yet, but it's, thus far it's advice that I agree with. I just, I just want to heap some praise on you before we move on to other topics. Thank you. Let, let me just uh, put some context on that. The book you're talking about is essentially how to program yourself to be more successful in whatever way you want, but the new one that's already available. And I actually find that appealing myself, and I want to be, I want to at least try to be fair. Yeah, maybe I, I don't care for the guy, but I actually do think that's a positive thing. You know, trying to kind of program yourself to maybe, you know, be a better person or to be um, more productive and to be able to get what you want out of life. Because I fool around with stuff like that. Like I do a lot of cognitive behavioral exercises. And even though I don't believe in the supernatural, you know, just kind of to see what effect it might have uh, psychologically, you know. Uh, I've, I've dabbled in like chaos magic and stuff like that, but I think it is good to work on yourself and the kind of try to rewire yourself to be kind of maybe more positive or more motivated or whatever. Uh, but anyway, for pre-order is about how to persuade other people. It's called win bigly and it'll be out in October. But I want to say, I also think, oh, there's something about, I don't like about trying to focus too much on persuading other people because there's something about it that seems manipulative, especially that kind of creeps me out when he's talking about it. But I think, yeah, it is good to, to learn how to more, you know, deal with people more effectively. But there's something about the idea of, um, I don't know, the whole thing about the hypnosis and the persuasion that, uh, I don't know, kind of doesn't sit right just kind of intuitively. Uh, if you put too much an effort, emphasis on trying to s persuade other people, you know? Oh, cool. So that, now that is a book I'm sure we will be getting some preview of in this conversation because that obviously relates to what we're going to be talking about. And uh, I'll, I'll put a link to that as well on my blog. Okay, so let, let me just set up this conversation so that everyone understands the context. As our listeners will be quite aware, I've been attacking Trump uh, really since before the election. So it's safe to say I'm not a fan. I'm sure I'll have some more impertinent things to say about El Presidente over the course of this next hour. But I've encountered a fair amount of criticism from people in my audience who like Trump, or at the very least feel that he was the best choice we had for president in 2016. And many of these people have been complaining that I've created an echo chamber here on the podcast because I've only been talking to Trump's detractors. And I, I certainly can see how they might think that. I, you know, although I've pointed out that the people I've been speaking with who criticize Trump have been Republicans for the most part. So the idea that these conversations have been an expression of political partisanship doesn't make any sense. There's, there's really zero partisanship coming from someone like David Frum or, or Ann Applebaum or me, for that matter, on this topic. Because, you know, for instance, none of what I've said about Trump would apply to Mitt Romney. And I've also never been shy about pointing out all the terrible things about Hillary Clinton. So if, if it's been 
an echo chamber. It hasn't been a, a left wing one. But in the meantime, I've been asking Trump supporters for months who I should bring on the podcast to represent the other side of the story and to help me recover from this much diagnosed Trump derangement syndrome, which <laughs> many people say I have. Uh, and I, I, I appear to have a whopping case of it. And you are the person who has been most often recommended to me. So I just would congratulate you on that score. Well, thank you. It's a lot of pressure on me, but okay. So I, I want to say one other thing at the outset, just to set the table here, because I've been seeing a, a few crazy comments online from obviously Trump supporters anticipating this podcast and wondering whether or not I would be fair to you. And um, so I just want to tell you how I view conversations like this and, and also tell our listeners. And I'm, I'm telling you now something that I, that I tell. Oh, get on with it. This must be how people feel when they listen to me sometimes at these unscripted episodes. Come on, man. I remember when I first started the podcast and uh, I would just kind of ramble about stupid shit. Not much has probably changed in that regard. And uh, I had people say, like, come on, just get to the point. That's how I kind of feel here. Get to the part where, where uh, we get to hear Adams talking about Trump. Something that didn't come out right. Then clearly state what your view is of Trump, because it hasn't been entirely clear to me how much you actually support him beyond just admiring his talent as a persuader. Much of what I've seen you say about him is more in the vein of explaining how Trump got elected and it's not really an argument that his election was a good thing or that he's a good person or that he's likely to be a good president. So just what is your view of Trump at this point? Well, I should tell your listeners, first of all, that I have a background as a trained hypnotist and I've been studying the field of persuasion all of my adult life as part of my job. It's part of what a writer does, part of what a cartoonist needs. So when I saw uh, Trump enter the race, I noticed fairly quickly he had the strongest set of persuasion skills I've ever seen. He has what I call a, a skill stack, a complementary set of skills that if you look. All right. So once again, I mean, holy shit. The guy gets on stage, speaks in generalities, saying basically what people want to hear. And so, yeah, I'm just not seeing it. How can you look at Trump and think he's a master persuader. Once again, he seems pretty successful at persuading a certain demographic. Uh, but most people I'd like to think with their heads on straight, you know, like, once again, like fairly intelligent people who have an intact BS meter, you know, I mean, you're able to see right through the guy. He's like a used car salesman who's just keeps throwing out the same stock uh, pejoratives or uh, superlatives. Terrific. Terrible. Any one of those skills, you'd say, well, that's good. That's better than most people, but that's not any world-class particular special skill. But when you put them together, they're insanely effective, you know, as we can see, because he's president. Uh, he made it, you know, against all odds. And my view on the well, I think he made it because the DNC underestimated just how much people did not care for Hillary Clinton and how much people were looking for a change from the usual stuff suits. You know what I mean? And that created a kind of a, a kind of opening or a vacuum for someone like Trump. 
And if I'm not mistaken, he won through the Electoral College. Uh, I think she still had the popular vote, even despite how uh, much people uh, don't really care for, shall we say. Um, but I wish Scott Adams would kind of lay out what particular skills he's talking about. Maybe he has, you know, somewhere or whatever. Like I said before, I don't really care for him, so I'm not, uh, you know, hate-watching his videos or whatever, keeping up with what he's doing. Um... I mean, what skills? Because, I mean, when I watch Donald Trump, I see these weird little hand gestures. His mouth always looks something like a butthole. Uh, you know, once again, uh, he's just throwing out the same stock uh, pejoratives and superlatives. And he exudes insincerity, you know? Um, I don't know. Politics of it is that my political preferences didn't align with either side in the election. Uh, I consider myself an ultra-liberal on social stuff, meaning that even liberals don't recognize me because I'm more liberal than liberals. I could give you some examples of that to, to fill that in if you want. Uh, and then on the big stuff, you know, the international stuff. That'd be interesting. I wonder if he's actually down with like a UBI or something like that. You know, how far left is he? Um, I don't know. The, how, do, how do you beat ISIS and... What's the best thing to do with North Korea? Uh, my view is that none of us really know the answer to that because we don't have the information that government would have uh, and we don't have the, the full context that they have. So generally, I don't have a firm position on the big international stuff and on the smaller uh, local stuff, the domestic stuff. Uh, I'm in favor of people doing whatever they want to do as long as it doesn't affect me. So I, again, I, I should say that I, I haven't seen everything or read everything you've said on, on this topic. I've read some of your blog posts and I've seen some of your Periscope videos, which you've been doing quite regularly about Trump. But it seems to me that you you are sort of having it both ways here because you, you seem to delight in his ability to get away with doing at least questionable things. I mean, I would say bad things, but I mean, certainly dishonest things because you admire his talent as a persuader, but to my eye, very quickly begins to seem like a defense of the bad things he's doing, or at least a denial that they are bad, or, or a denial that he's doing any harm to our civil discourse and to our politics by lying to the degree that he does. So where, where does your appreciation of the artistry grade into actually thinking he is good and liable to do good things? The way I like to frame it is that I'm helping people see him clearly without the filter that the opposition is putting on him. Because he has a, a set of skills and a, a talent that we've never seen before, meaning that nothing like this has ever you know, been in the political uh, realm that we've seen. So what he can do is probably different from what a regular politician can do, both on the upside and the downside, I would think. So I'm not... You know, I'm not uh, discounting that there's greater risk with a President Trump than a some you know vanilla president. Uh, but I think his supporters have said explicitly and often, "We'll take the risk. We'll take the chaos. Um, that's the price of change." So uh, there's a lot of that that is. So that bit might not have aged well. Uh, we'll take the risk. We'll take the chaos. Well, we got chaos. That's for sure accept and I see my my role in this as clarifying 
And if they like that choice, if that's a risk profile that they appreciate, then at least they can see it a little more clearly. Now, let me, let me speak about the, the, the lying part, because I, I think that's probably central to your problem. Would, would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah. So here's how I frame that. It is unambiguously true, and it is clear to both his supporters and his critics that he says things fairly frequently that do not pass <laughs> the fact checks. Uh, and you would agree with that, right? So we're, I think we're starting from the same factual starting. It understates it for me, but yes, that, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> now, obviously, obviously his supporters would say, well, that one thing he said wasn't so wrong. You know, so there'd be lots of disagreement in the gray areas. But there's no question that there are a lot of things he said that don't pass the fact-checking, and everybody agrees with that. Here's the part that I put on top of this that I think is helpful. When, when you understand persuasion at the level that he does, and at the level that I've come to understand it through my own work over the years, uh, the truth is not, uh, is not as useful <laughs> as, I guess that's the best way to put it, it's not as useful as it should be because it doesn't change people's minds. And the job of politics is often to change people's minds. And so I disagree with that strongly. Uh, you longtime listeners will know how much I value things like the truth, facts, empirical evidence, etc. And one of the main reasons why I'm not religious is because facts and evidence mean more to me than blindly believing in something that gives me the warm fuzzies. Uh, and what earns my respect and admiration when it comes to a public figure isn't used car salesman BS or cynical manipulation or quote-unquote persuasion. It's knowing I can trust the person to be factually honest and truthful. And I actually think it's pretty uh, patronizing and or disrespectful of a politician to assume that their base uh, to assume of their base, rather, that bullshit and chicanery will work better on them than being honest and talking to them like adults. Obviously, and sadly, this kind of thing does work on certain people. And politicians have been doing this for a long time. But isn't something I think should be celebrated or encouraged? Um, this idea that facts and honesty aren't useful or don't work well on an audience is another kind of grotesque glimpse into Scott Adams' cynical worldview, I think. Uh, I feel very engaged when I'm listening to someone who's imparting information in a sincere yet passionate way. Think a TED Talk or a scientific uh, lecturer, you know. And what would always really move me or inspire me is when, say, during an atheist versus theist debate, someone like Hitchens or Dawkins would indignantly push back against uh, bullshit you know, in defense of uh, reason and scientific truth. Pardon the swearing. I'm trying to keep it in check. Uh, yeah, so I think a leader can be charismatic and inspirational and still deal in facts. And, the, and you know, the fact-based approach might prove to be more productive and less messy. I've, I've known a number of narcissists slash habitual liars in my life. Uh, a very destructive personality type, uh, shall we say. And they tend to always make things unnecessarily complicated with their constant lying. And, uh, you know, usually you have to end up giving them the boot before they, uh, you know, before they take you down with them. Their hearts, their emotions, what they care about, what their priorities are. 
So if you if you were to look at the types of things that the president has said that didn't pass the fact checking, and that's the way I'll, I, I'm going to prefer to say it, is uh, they are almost always emotionally true, or they are emotionally <laughs> compatible with what his um, his supporters are already thinking. Wow! So it's all right to lie as long as it you know wins the favor of his base or whatever. There is an emotional and directional truth to what he does that's in. Was there an emotional truth when he was spreading the BS about, you know, promote when he was promoting the birther movement? Probably was some emotional truth in there. Like, we don't like uh, foreigners, especially brown ones. You know, I mean, that's why I think it was red meat to his kind of, uh, you know, xenophobic maybe it sounds harsh, but even racist base. You know what I mean? It, it re Even though it was factually not true, as far as we can tell, what was it? The uh, I always talk about this, either the Republican mayor or governor who, you know, produced his birth certificate. But hey, you know, his base would rather hear that he's uh, a swarthy, uh, a dark-skinned Manchurian candidate from another land, you know? Dependent from the facts being completely wrong. So, for example, when he said um, there were uh, Muslims dancing on the rooftops or in the streets after 9-11, that, that does not fa pass the fact checkers. But it is unambiguously true that his supporters and even his critics would say, I'm a little concerned that there are some people in the Muslim faith who are not as unhappy about 9-11 as they should have been. Well, firstly, I don't know if he's talking about Muslims here in America, or if he's talking about people elsewhere in the Muslim world, you know what I mean? Because there were people in parts of the quote-unquote Muslim world, uh, you know, um, who did kind of rejoice in seeing the uh, the United States get its nose bloodied, uh, you know what I mean? Um, there were people who did, uh, and it was sickening to me, but that doesn't justify you know, the bold-faced lie that there were Muslims here on the rooftops or whatever, dancing with joy, dancing, uh, with joy or whatever. And to me, you know, that's more than hyperbole. That's an effing lie. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, there's a big difference between people in some Muslim land on the other side of the world jumping for joy uh, because of 9-11 and saying that there were people here in New York or whatever, I think didn't Trump say he could see them from his uh, from his window or whatever? These people jumping for joy, celebrating nine eleven. So to me, trying to excuse that as just grotesque, uh, it's it's a lie. So in other words, what he said was technically, specifically, factually incorrect, as far as we can tell, <laughs> unless something new comes around. But. It still fit. It fit what we were thinking. It fit the the general truth that we all accept is probably true. And I would think you would accept that as well. I mean, am I misunderstanding things or not getting it? He's, he's talking about when didn't Trump claim to see people from his window uh, celebrating 9-11. You know, uh, yeah, um, and you know, it's probably seemed like I was softening on Scott Adams for a bit there. But yeah, now I'm remembering why the guy rubs me the wrong way and why I was shaking my head the first time I listened to this. And 
what you see in persuasion is something called pacing and leading. And it's a very important concept in persuasion. The pacing part is where you become compatible with the other person or persons you're trying to influence. You're trying to match them in some way that's important. And if you match them long enough, called pacing, uh, eventually they will let you lead because you are one of them, they're comfortable with you, they agree with you, they feel the same way you feel, they trust you, they trust you emotionally. And that's the way people need to trust you. Because trusting somebody factually is, is sort of a, uh, a non-starter. It doesn't help that much, right? Tr- no, I disagree with that. Um, I would say I trust someone more who's proven that they're rational and that they're factual. Uh, it's why I love people like, you know, Richard Dawkins, uh, certain science communicators, uh, why I loved, uh, still love, you know, uh, Carl Sagan. I think when people are truthful and factually accurate and they demonstrate that they're intellectually honest and have critical thinking, you know, it, it that forms a bond and you look at them as people you can trust because they've proven that they have integrity and that facts matter to them and that they want to communicate what's factually true. And I think that's what integrity is probably a good word because I think that's what Donald Trump lacks. He lacks integrity. I mean, a guy who's willing to say whatever he has to, to get you on his side for his own interests I mean, I don't see the integrity in that. But someone who cares about being truthful and honest, that's going to speak to me more and make me respect the person more than, you know, a BS artist and their uh, persuasion tricks or whatever. Somebody emotionally says, yeah, I can let you do things that even I don't think are right, (laughs) but I know that you're heading in the right direction. I trust that you have more information than I do. I trust that if you have to pivot because it doesn't work out, you'll do that. Because you and I are emotionally on the same page. We want generally the same thing. Similarly with um, take immigration. Now, one of the things that uh, President Trump and before that candidate Trump was saying that was emotionally compatible with a lot of people is, hey, there are, um, there's an immigration issue. It brings with it some amount of crime that we wish we didn't have. And it brings with it some risk of, uh, of terrorists slipping in, which we wish we didn't have. And those things scare us, and we would like to have less of it. Now, that's the, the emotional truth that is common to both sides of the conversation, right? That everybody would like less of those things. Now, the way he does it, of course, is with his typical hyperbole of coming in with the biggest first offer you've ever seen, which is, I'm going to ship back, you know, what was it, 12 million uh, people who are undocumented in this country? Now, now, when you heard it, and when people on the other side heard it, they quite reasonably said, holy hell, <laughs> there's no way you can do that, first of all. It would be cruel, second of all. Um, it would be, you know, it would cause riots in the streets. It would cause a civil war, practically. I mean, it's such a big, hard-to-do, you know, bad thing. But when I heard it, I said to myself, and I said publicly a lot of times, he doesn't mean that. He's, he's taken a big first offer that gives him lots of room to negotiate back. 
So now as we watch him as president, and what he's doing is, you know, I guess ICE is rounding up a lot of people who have committed crimes while in the country. You know, after coming into the country, they committed additional crimes. And probably there are some cases, I think almost surely, some cases where ICE, let's say, uh, breaks down a door and there's a room full of people and you know, three of them have been in a you know, serious gang violence situations. So of course you want to deport those guys. But then there's a couple of guys who are just members of the gang who, you know, you don't have any proof they did anything that was another additional crime. But what are they doing in the room? So let's say those two guys get shipped back too because they're just sort of in that gray area. And they're, there's... Oh, he's boring the shit out of me. Where's Sam talk again? <laughs> so we see he's saying, this is going to cost me. We're on the far right. A reasonable... Jesus, All man. in confirmation. How long is this fucker talking? And I described that, uh, that they simply changed the... And so the, 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 the question oh, is, on, the, the mismatch... On, let me, can, can I interrupt you again? And comes up. It's not... And it was replaced with, well, he's not Hitler, but he's definitely incompetent. He's so incompetent. There's chaos in the White House. They can't get anything done. And I predicted that by the end of the summer, he would, in fact, get things done. But, but the criticisms uh, don't stop because that's just not the way it works. People don't change positions like that. They simply change the reasons that they oppose him. And I predicted that the reasons would change from, you know, he's Hitler to he's incompetent to, all right, he did get a lot of things done and they were the things he said he was going to get done and they, they do match, you know, Republican positions, but we don't like it. All right. He is competent. He does get things done. He's effective, but we don't like what he's doing. So I think that's where you, where it's going to be by year end. And it seems to be heading that way. One thing I, I want to point out, which just strikes me as a strange emphasis that I've heard from you here, but I've, I've also heard this just quite frequently from other Trump supporters. So it, it, I just want to flag it. I don't know what, if much turns on it, but so for instance, in your description of what created the cognitive dissonance, you talk about the failure of people who don't like Trump to predict that he would win the election. So everyone was just blindsided by the fact that he won, and this put them into this the other movie theater uh, where they're seeing just you know, civilization unravel. I mean, for me, it was never a matter of being sure that Hillary Clinton was going to win. In fact, the last poll I looked at that I thought was actually informative, you know, Trump had a 20 or 25% chance of winning, and I, you know, I'm statistically educated. I know how often a 20% chance of winning comes up. It's not a tiny probability. So it's not the surprise that is worth emphasizing here. It's the horror at the fact that we have elected someone so obviously wrong for the job. This two movies analysis still works. Whether you predicted anything or whether anyone else predicted anything. Oh, yeah. So I must have uh, scrubbed by where Scott Adams is talking about there's like two different movies going on, you know, you know, one movie in the heads of Trump supporters and another movie maybe distorted, you know, in the heads of the uh, the Trump detractors or whatever. Even if everyone thought it was a it was a horse race until the last second and there was a 50 percent chance of, of either candidate winning. I think you would have the exact same outcome in terms of a repudiation of this of this choice that our, our nation made. But Sam, let me ask you this. 
At what point in the process did you decide that he was incompetent to be president? That is a great question. That is, I, I love that question. That, that is my favorite question ever asked of me on this podcast. I guess let's focus on the master persuader idea because I mean, this, here's the movie I'm in, right? <laughs> uh, you, you, you've said that Trump is the greatest persuader you've ever seen. I, I think you actually wrote, uh, I think I, I saw this in a blog post of yours that you wrote that if Steve Jobs was a 10, Trump is a 15. I think I have that right. <laughs> okay, so here's the movie I'm in. And this predates this election by at least a decade. I find Trump one of the least persuasive people on earth. I mean, long, long yeah. before he ran for president, he struck me as nothing more than an odious con man. He strikes me as an absolutely despicable person. Preach, wait, Sam. Wait, preach. Wait a minute. Can I... Can I get a clarification? I agree with yes. Brother Sam. Odious con man. Did you mean that he was good at being a conning people or bad at conning people? Well, he was cl clearly conning. Uh, bad at conning smart people, maybe. And some people. I'm saying that he's not conning me. And so the, 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 the question oh, is that the, the, the mismatch. Let me, can, can I interrupt you again? Because yeah, yeah, this sure. is really important. Um, he was conning, apparently, according to your frame of things in you know, prior to the election, it seems probably to you that he was conning enough people to do the things he needed to do, which was, you know, build buildings and keep his fortune high and become a reality TV star and, and all that stuff. Yeah, but, but that was it. He was a reality TV star who, I mean, I, I, I viewed him, actually, I viewed him, I mean, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about him, but I, I assumed that most people were in on the joke right, that he was a kind of punchline. It was like a, a punchline lived over the course of a profitable life. But he was, this was not somebody who was, as he was billing himself to be, a truly great businessman or anything else. Yeah, Sam, there's an important point here that I, I don't want to lose by going sure. too far past it. Uh, your, your understanding of him at the time was that he could con some people and apparently it was enough of the right people he was conning to use your word to effectively do the things he was trying to do would that would that accurately state your opinion well yeah but the things he was trying to do bore no relationship to becoming president or becoming somebody who's actually well, right, right. shouldering significant responsibility no i agree with that but we're just talking about the tools of persuasion and and what you just said if if i heard it right is that even early on, you realize he had the tools of persuasion, which you would characterize as a con man, uh, just a different word for essentially the same set of tools. It has more to do with the intention, I guess. But the crucial difference here, again, I mean, I'm just trying to describe what it's like to watch my movie as opposed to your movie or the movie watched by half the country. I, I can see that he must be persuading somebody. I mean, he fully persuaded half the country to become president. But there is never a moment where I find him persuasive. When I look at him, I see a man, I mean, it's, it's really uncanny. It's, it's like a, it's, I see a man without any inner life. I see, <laughs> I see the most superficial person on earth. It's like it's a guy who's been totally hollowed out by greed and self-regard and just delusion. I mean, the, the way he yeah. talks about himself is so, it's like, I mean, if, if I caught some sort of brain virus and I started talking about myself the way Trump talks oh, about Oh, this him. is awesome. 
I would throw myself out a fucking window. I mean, I, it's <laughs> like, like that, that barely overstates it. It's like, I mean, you remember that scene in the, yeah. the end of The Exorcist <laughs> where the priest finally, he's, he's driving out the devil from Linda Blair and the devil comes into him and then he just hurls himself out the window to end all. And you know what's funny about that? I was recently thinking about that very scene from The Exorcist and I was kind of like half joking with myself. Um, Cause you guys know I've been trying to phase out animal products for like ethical and health reasons. I was uh, grocery shopping and I saw that like Hagen Dazs was on sale and I'm like trying to keep myself from buying it. And I just, in my head, I kind of related, related to that moment where uh, Damien Karras is like with all his might, like trying to, uh, <laughs> you know, fight back the devil. Anyway, the madness. Well, it would be like that, right? Uh, yeah. Or, um, yeah, we've gone full exorcist on this. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. tell you, one of, the, one of the things that I write about in, in Periscope about is the triggers, you know, or the tells for cognitive di distance, you know. How, how do you tell that you're in it versus somebody else's in it? Did I just give you one of my tells? Yeah, you did. Uh, <laughs> the, the, most the most classic one is to imagine that you can know somebody's inner mental processes. So if you imagine that in his mind he's thinking this, or in his mind he's hollowed out, or in his mind there's no depth, uh, if you imagine that those are in there, I would say that is entirely imaginary and almost certainly a tell for well, cognitive. Well, no, it, it, but it's not. Way, no, and I would say it is true in fairness that we can never know exactly what's going on in someone else's, you know, heart or mind, but. I think that human beings are real. We're kind of hardwired to read one another. You know, it's probably an evolutionary survival thing. As a social species, we have to be able to accurately read one another and pick up on body language and inflection and cues, etc. Um, and so I think you can probably make a pretty good guess sometimes about what makes a person tick or maybe what's going on inside, judging by, you know, body language, uh, their actions, their track record, uh, the things they say. Um, and so, I th yeah, I think he does kind of carry himself as a hollow person propelled by ego, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me finish the thought. Sure. And the, and the trigger, so what I look for for confirmation is there's got to be a trigger, and then the second thing, which is the tell. So I just described the tell, which is describing some of these inner thoughts that you couldn't possibly know. And, I mean, nobody could. Uh, and the trigger, you also described very clearly. The trigger was there's something about his manner, the way he speaks, that bugs the fuck out of you. And, and that's your trigger. You're just misinterpreting a couple of things here. It's not, it's not the way he speaks, and it's not that I'm engaged in a mind-reading exercise. It's based entirely on what he says. It's well, I would say it's both. Like I was saying, I think people are you know, hardwired to be good at reading other people. And uh, there's, there is something about his vocal inflections that just scream bullshit. That this guy is not genuine. He's not being honest with me or whoever it is he's, you know, his message is intended for. And so, yeah, I think it's both. I think it's both the disingenuous... Uh, vocal inflections and it's the actual the factually inaccurate things that he says and his and his track record for being uh, factually inaccurate 
it, it is actually the thoughts that come out of his mouth. It's not how he says it. It's what he says. But wait, you said two. That's a good point, too, that um, like I was saying how, you know, we can't really know for certain what's in someone else's uh, head or heart. But, um, you know, between things like vocal inflection, uh, the way they carry themselves, uh, the, the things they're saying, you know, that, you know, from their brain out their mouths, you know what I mean? Things that are in contradiction now. You said that he's a con man and always has been but that the things he said are a good reflection of what he's thinking. You kind of have to pick one. Well, no, it's just that he is a... He betrays himself all the time with uh, the... He gives you an insight to what kind of person he is by uh, the shit that comes out of his mouth. A liar who will lie whenever it suits his interest and even when it doesn't suit his interest. He, he will lie with, a, with a, an, an alacrity that I have never seen before in a public person. I think, yeah, I think there are, you have to break that into two categories. The, the things you're calling the lies, maybe three. There, there are some things which probably he thinks are right and he just gets wrong, which would be typical of any. I'll forgive him many of those things, yes. Right. There are some things which are clearly just hyperbole, which he knows are not exactly factual, but it works better to you know, make the big first offer. And then there's another category, which is the hardest for anybody to understand. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure I'll be able to sell this to anybody here. But if you are uh, a trained persuader, you have such a low regard for some types of facts that you just don't care if they're right or wrong, because they really aren't ever going to matter to the outcome. They won't matter to decisions, and they won't matter to the outcome. Now. I believe, uh, having been watching him through this filter now for a couple of years, that he can definitely tell the difference between all those categories. And that uh, I haven't seen him tell the lie that, that causes uh, you know, the country to be harmed in any way. They, they all seem to be either <laughs> trivial. And he I told care. him, stop testing. And, you know, we need less testing. Because that's bad persuasion, too, in many cases. Uh, or, or they're emotionally correct. So there, my filter on this, that he's actually a skilled persuader and he knows exactly what he's doing, and those things which are clearly just mistakes tend to be trivial, uh, that is what I use to predict the outcome that got us exactly where we are. And my starting point was everybody can, can hindcast, everybody can say, oh, the way he won was, here's my reason, CNN listed I think, I don't know, 24 different reasons why the surprising result of, of his election happened. Uh, and they're all different reasons. So as you know, confirmation bias, blah, 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 allows you to explain what happened in the past with any number of stories, and they all fit. That's why we have you know trials and lawyers, and all of their stories sound good, and the jury has to sort it out. But what I did early on is I said, I'm so sure that these tools are real and consistent and he knows what he's doing, that I'm going to risk my entire fucking career to predict that he's going to win it all and win it big. And not only did he win it big, but, you know, he won in the, the electoral uh, college. He won the only way that it mattered. He played the only game that they were playing and he won. Now, some people will say, well, he lost the popular vote. And I would say, you're right. He did lose the game that he wasn't playing. He never played that game. So uh, 
And like I said, and I don't know this for sure, this is speculation, but some have, you know, said that it seemed like he didn't even plan on winning. You know, he wanted to try to kind of uh, capitalize on the attention. And then once he actually won, it was kind of like, oh, shit. But I think now that he has the power, you know, he has he's so egomaniacal that he doesn't want to give it up. Uh, if you look at the predictions and if you see that they seem to be hitting all the, the right notes, that is a little more persuasive than saying, well, I'm going to look at it in the past and apply these, you know, 25 different filters that all pretty much work. There are lots of different explanations of how things work in the past. But Scott, the emphasis on him successfully persuading doesn't deal with the fact that what he would be persuading someone toward or the country toward may not be a good thing. I mean, so for instance, I think he is someone who is so morbidly selfish. And again, this is not me with a crystal ball. This is me just looking at how he's lived his life, the kinds of things he's done, the kinds of things he says about himself. He's put himself first to such a pathological degree that I think he's capable of committing treason or something like treason without even noticing it. There's, there's no sense at all that he has the public good in mind when he's acting. So the fact that he's a good persuader, even if I were going to grant you that, and there's, other, there's one thing I want to flag here that you just said that I, I think is, is manifestly not true, which is that none of his lies have harmed our society. I think all of his lies have harmed our society. I think the fact that we have a president who lies and everyone knows it and, 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 and no one can really trust what he has said until the facts come out, yeah. I think that has done immense harm to the world, frankly. In, in, what, in what quantitative way is it? Would I agree with Sam there, and I don't think it's just hyperbole. You know, I've had friends who were habitual liars or manipulators, you know what I mean? And these type of people sow chaos. So the fact that he's supposed to be the head of our nation and uh, the head of, you know, the largest superpower in the world, and that people look at him like a patho a pathological liar or a buffoon or someone whose word you cannot trust that is i mean th that's chaos you know what i mean that's uh the stock would the stock market be at even higher record levels the stock market would, is would, the is would, the wrong metric here i mean it, well would 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 isis be reconstituting if he if he'd been a little more forthcoming would would North Korea have, you know, not have launched that last nuke? What, what exactly would be the evidence that something he said has actually harmed the fabric of society? The fact okay. that all of us are... It's the lying in itself, you know what I mean? Um, in general, and this is probably... I mean, there might be some cultures that have certain, you know, mores or whatever, or practices that are different, that have a different view on, you know, kind of bragging and lying, etc., but for the most part, I think most human beings would agree that lying is bad. So when you have a leader who's constantly lying, who you can't trust as far as you could throw, you know, his, his bloated orange body. Talking about politics. The fact that politics is so much a part of our lives now is toxic. It's a sign that something is wrong with our society. If things were good, we would not be talking about politics. Right. And uh, we're, okay. we're, 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 talk, we're talking about politics. Right. And I uh, agree and disagree with Sam here. I think um, 
and I think that Scott Adams makes this point, you know, it's a good thing to have people interested in politics. But at the same time, yeah, it can be a sign that something's wrong, you know, when there's more political division than usual, when there's riots in the street. Uh, of course, this was back in 2017. But yeah, I think they both kind of have a point here. Ten times more than we ever have in the lifetime of any person hearing this podcast. I could list a hundred other bad things, but that's one symptom. It's a, it's a very good thing, and I'll tell you why. So first of all, the going back to the two movies on one screen, the, the, the people on the right, the people who are supporting Trump, are having the best two years of their lives. I mean, I have never seen such joy and happiness coming out of that segment of the public. But again, that's, a, that's an amoral claim. I mean, you know that that would have been said of, to take the extreme example, the burgeoning enthusiasm for the thousand-year Reich in, <laughs> in you know, 1938. I mean, it's just like you get nothing with that claim. Did, did you go full Hitler analogy? I went full Hitler analogy conscious of, of how it would be received. <laughs> I remember thinking about Hitler uh, during you know, the first time I was listening to this. Um, and uh, the reason why it came up for me was that uh, he keeps talking about persuasion and hypnotism, uh, that kind of thing. And I think it isn't a known fact that um, Hitler knew a professional mesmerist or whatever who actually coached him on the the art of persuasion and you know when you see hitler has those really like crazy you know hand and arm gestures that kind of really wild strong gesticulation uh and you know the strong speaking voice and everything yeah i think he had a a mesmerist who i think the guy might have ended up being killed or something uh he kind of um outlived his purpose or something like that yeah, and that, I know it uh, was a Godwin's law when, you know, someone invokes Hitler in a, uh, in a conversation or whatever. Yeah, but I think invoking Hitler can be useful because it helps to illustrate the point that uh, being a master persuader isn't always a good thing uh, in the end, you know? I declare victory at this point. <laughs> oh, no. I, I think that's actually a, a bad meme. Was it, is that Godwin's law? I think it's a bad meme that we, we have to quash somehow. I, I've actually been writing, uh, I write this in my new book, that when somebody retreats to analogy, whether it's a Hitler analogy or not, it's because they've run out of reasons. Like no, nobody uses an analogy if they have a reason, because a reason is, all way, is way better than analogy. No, no, no. Well, okay, well, that, that, that's interesting. I, I think I disagree with that, too, but well, let's move on. Yeah, that is uh, very odd, trying to say that analogies, if you use an analogy, it means you're losing a conversation. I think analogies are kind of useful tools to help illustrate a point or to help, uh, you know, doesn't have to be in a debate, but to help the person that you're interacting with kind of see your point more clearly or whatever. Analogies are tools of communication. If you're not getting what I'm saying, but I know you'll get this other test case that I think is actually isomorphic with, with what I'm talking about, well, then I go to the analogy. It's only bad if it's a bad analogy, but Nothing, nothing hinges on this. No, because all analogies are approximations by design. So you're not talking about the same topic. You know, uh, anyway, we could talk about analogies some more. Sure. Uh, I, I agree that analogies are excellent for explaining a concept for the first time. So if you say a zebra, if you've never heard of a zebra, it's like a horse, but imagine it has some stripes on it. So I don't, uh, you know, there, there are lots yeah, of that, cases where that, that's that, that gets me a long way to a zebra. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it doesn't make a zebra a horse. Right. And never can. 
right? So that's my only point. So back to the, uh, whether it's bad that we're all talking about politics. I've actually been streaming and talking and blogging about this very point, that we have collectively as a society learned more about each other, the nature of you know, truth, reality, persuasion in particular. You'll see lots of people talking now about cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, persuasion. These are important concepts for people's happiness and understanding of their, of their condition that we never had before. And in fact, before the election, I had said uh, several times publicly that what Trump was going to do was not just change politics, which he did. I mean, he changed everything, but that he would rip a hole in the fabric of reality and let us peek through. And that hole is, is what we're peeking through right now, which is that, two, that people can sit in the same theater watching a different movie and that there's a reason for it. We know what the reason is. It's confirmation bias. It's cognitive dissonance. And that, uh, and that that's, you know, that understanding goes a lot further than, hey, your facts are wrong. You lied about this. You didn't pass my fact checking. So we needed Trump to teach us about logical fallacies and the fact that different people see things from different perspectives. Strange take. You know, if you're, if you're locked in that smaller less aware world where you think that people make decisions on logic and facts because you think they should, you're, you're missing the biggest part of life, which is that people don't. Yeah, I would agree with you if you said to me, Scott, I think we should use reason and facts and we should never depart from that. I would say, sure, that's great. We should, but we can't because we're not built that way. We humans don't have that capacity in general. Yeah, we can in very constructive constrained ways like science, but in general, no. Okay, well, let's plant a flag there, because that's an interesting topic that is obviously bigger and deeper than this political topic, and maybe we'll get to it. And that's actually the topic in some measure of your first book or your last book that I've been reading. Um, and if we have time, I'd love to touch that. But I just want to come back. I mean, again, I, I'm, I have this creeping feeling of confusion or bewilderment that I, I want you to sort out for me. And it comes down to this two-movie analogy, because I don't see how they are actually different movies. I get that in the other theater... Wait. Yeah, didn't uh, Scott Adams use a two-movie analogy? The fans of Trump don't care about certain things that are appearing on the screen, and I care very strongly about those things, but I don't get how they're actually not seeing these things or they're, they're seeing them differently. And I'll, I want to take you back just to what you said before when, when I went full exorcist on you. Well, can I, can I, can I interrupt? Because I think sure. there have been some news reports recently that said that Trump, Trump supporters know exactly you know, what's true and what isn't. Uh, and there isn't that much difference between the two sides. I'll give you an example of like, this is what the kind of thing that's in my movie. There's literally a hundred things I can mention here, but I'll just mention a couple. So it, just, it seems to me that everything you need to know about Trump's ethics were revealed in the whole Trump University scandal, right? So I mean, this is a guy who's having his employees pressure poor elderly people to max out their credit. Let's see. Yeah, I'm getting... Uh bored and tired i have to work tomorrow so maybe i'll just try to uh okay here it is yeah right wing watch dilbert creator joe biden is satanic and i can make his name spell out 666 oh that's why i forgot to mention i didn't know if scott adams was uh 
religious or not, but uh, apparently he believes, or he might not strongly believe in it. Maybe he just likes the idea because it is kind of a cool idea. Um, I think it's called pandeism or something like that. Okay, here we are. In addition to his cartoon work, he has written two books on religion, God's Debris and The Religion War. God's Debris lays out a theory of pandeism in which God blows itself up to see what will happen, which becomes the cause of our universe. And it's funny, I've heard that, uh, I haven't heard the actual term for it, but I've heard that concept thrown around um, on occasion, you know, since I've been doing this show. Uh, I think Chris Weber uh, brought that up once. And uh, Chris, like myself, is a non-believer, but... Uh, I think we were just, it was kind of, it's kind of a cool concept, even if you don't believe it, you know, I think sometimes it's put like God's last dying act was creating the universe or something, you know I mean? Um, yeah, it sounds like one of those late night dorm room discussion things, but sometimes those have merit or at least they can be fun. But says Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert and a right wing conspiracy theorist who said in 2016 that the Democratic National Convention was literally lowering testosterone levels all over the country, wants you to know Joe Biden is satanic. How does he know that? Because if you manipulate his name, it reveals 666. Do you know if you took the capital letter J? Just imagine the capital letter J in your mind. Now think of the next letter in Joe. It's an O. Now just move in your mind the O to the left until it's on top of the J. It's a backward six. So that's the J and the O, the form of backward six. Now suppose the next letter is the, the lowercase e. What does a lowercase e look like if you turn it upside down? What the fuck? Well, it looks like a six. So you got the J and the O together. If you combine them, it looks like a backward six. You've got the lowercase e that looks like an upside down six, but that's just two sixes. Six six wouldn't be anything, right? But the next letter is capital B for Biden. And capital B is where you hide your six. So even J-O-E-B is six six six. What, what is left of the word Biden? If you take out the B, because that's where the six is hiding. What's left of the word Biden? Are you ready for this? I-D-E-N. I-D-E-N. Identity. Six, six, six. Identity. That's what Joe Biden's name actually is. Do you know? What the f I mean, is he joking there? Is this like some kind of weird little tongue-in-cheek thing, uh, like dry humor? Or does he actually believe what he's saying and he's freaking mentally ill and uh, seeing patterns and meaningful connections where there aren't any? You know, I have, I have no idea. That's baked. That is baked. And that's kind of funny, uh, lower down, someone takes uh, the name Donald and shows how that can be uh, turned into 666, ID for identity. <laughs> oh my God, what's going on? So uh, there's no way I'm getting this out in time. I, can't, I said, what, an hour? And it's been at least two hours. So 
Oh, I'm just going to have to try edit this when I can and get it out whenever. Uh, thanks for putting up with me, everyone. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, Till next time.